If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with... Steve Melching. Darren Dockerman. Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The only way to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. Coming soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. (laughs) Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Somewhere in our imagination. Resistance is futile. In the fragile corners of our minds, fear becomes one. Not only are they dreaming, they're all having the same dream. Terror waits to strike. Prepare to surrender your ship. A living nightmare begins. One by one, you will fall asleep and enter our reality, where it is you who will be destroyed. Chakotay! On the next Star Trek Voyager. Hi, this is Peter Elmstrom. And this is Lisa Klink. And we are not the Inglorious Trexperts. We have stolen the briefing room yet again to bring you another exclusive podcast commentary for an episode of Star Trek Voyager, Season 4, Episode 13, uh, Walking, uh, excuse me, Waking Moments, Waking Moments. Uh, today, we are joined by the writer of that episode, Andre Bormanis. How are you doing today, Andre? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm very excited for this. This is uh, you were like the science advisor for years. You did the techno babble, which I love profusely. So this, is, <laughs> this will be good times. <laughs> what we lovingly call the techno babble, yeah. Yes. No, and it was it was it was uh, it was a it was a great time, and uh, you know, it was my opportunity to get involved in writing, um, to you know, work in both the you know the scientific and the the fields of uh, art and entertainment and uh, it's 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 a lot of fun to be at the intersection of those things so i'd love to hear uh, how this episode came about was it an original pitch from you it was yeah you know i've been thinking about a story like this um for some time when i was in my late teens uh i had some lucid dreams dreams where i became aware of the fact that i was dreaming and could then take control of the dream and direct it into different directions. And I remember one of them, I, um, I was um, running in a field. It was like an, an apple orchard or something like that. Green and lovely, and it was a nice day. And my friend Jeff Stone, one of my uh, friends from growing up in Phoenix, he and I were just kind of running around in this field. And then he started to head towards some other part of the field and and i tried to follow him and my legs got very heavy you know that feeling you get sometimes mm-hmm. when you're dreaming and your legs get heavy and i started to slow down and slow down and, and it felt like i was walking through molasses and i i just had to stop and i was exhausted and i saw jeff just running off into the you know into the distance and i'm like damn and then i realized that i was dreaming and i'm like oh my gosh this is a dream well if this <laughs> is a dream then i can fly right 
Yeah. And I got up and I started flying. <laughs> and I flew all around the orchard and I went up into the mountains, you know, and and it was great. And and I had a few more uh, lucid dreams uh, subsequent to that. One of them I remember I was on a on a big rotating wheel like space station like two thousand and one, and I realized oh, <laughs> dream. This is cool. And I knew from studying physics that out at the edge of the wheel was the highest gravity. And if I made my way toward the hub, I'd be weightless. And so I did that. And I went up to the hub and I floated around weightless. And, you know, so I, I'd always, you know, had this idea that it would be fun to do an episode that involved somebody getting in, somebody having a dream and realizing that they're having a dream and that there are other people in the dream who don't know that it's a dream. Mm-hmm. And because we have a character on Voyager named Chakotay, who is of Native American origin, and there were, you know, one of the things that I discovered after I, you know, sort of stumbled into lucid dreaming on my own was that there were these sort of traditions in South American Native, you know, um, um, cultures that talked about lucid dreaming. And there was a guy named, I think, Carlos Castaneda who wrote some books about this and you know, I, I found all of that just very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what if we encountered a race of aliens who believe that the waking life is kind of the illusion and the dream life is the real world? Mm-hmm. And what kind, of a, what kind of trouble could we get into with, you know, with, uh, with a group of aliens like that? I, I don't remember exactly how much of that I pitched, probably that, maybe a couple of other ideas, but pitched it to Jerry Taylor. She liked the idea. We kept talking about it, got together with the writing staff. And uh, I don't, I don't know if you were part of that, Lisa, I don't remember. Yes. You might yeah, have been. I was there. Yeah. And so, you know, we kicked it around, we outlined it. I, I went off and wrote a first draft. Yeah. You know, the first draft had some problems as they often do. Yeah. And I think Ken Biller came in and helped me, you know, fix the things that weren't working. And that ultimately became the episode Waking Moments. That's terrific. Yeah. And I think Robert Beltran, you know, who played Chicote, liked it because one of the one of the not very many episodes that featured him, you know, in the lead role. Yeah, no and, kidding. Uh, we know, we always needed Robert more Chicote stories. Yeah, I always thought, you know, his character was a little underutilized, and uh, we didn't do enough with his background. And you know, old white guy like me writing about Native Americans is not necessarily <laughs> you know, the best thing. <laughs> the best thing to uh, you know to try to do uh, in a series like Star Trek, but, you know, we, we all, we all share a common humanity and, and, you know, I did have the experience of lucid dreaming and understood that, you know, um, and was fascinated by the dynamics of it. And, and so that, you know, that launched the story. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's get into it. Sure. Um, So for the viewers out there, again, we are watching um, season four, episode 13 of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, you can watch it on uh, Paramount Plus or Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, uh, or you can buy the DVD, which is uh, the best way to to view it um, for some odd reason. I don't know why, but streaming oh, kind of... We're going to do a little countdown, Lisa, is that... Oh, yes, Peter's going to count us down. Oh, great. We're going to okay. count us down here, yes. And uh, then we'll get into it. So, um, sorry, I'm just getting myself set up here. All right. Okay, so let's do this. Three, two, one, and play. So, uh, Andre, I'm, I'm curious too because, oh, okay. So here's Harry Kim I require your assistance in Jeffrey's walking down the corridor. It's funny because early on there was this uh, running like uh, Harry Kim and Seven of Nine mm-hmm. romance tease. Um, was that something that was constantly t- talked about in the room as being something to pursue? Or was it just something that kind of came up naturally? It kind of came up naturally. Um, and I think it was sort of in character for Harry Kim in that he uh, he sort of fell in love with a lot of pretty women <laughs> during the show. And uh, Seven, of course, being gorgeous, he wouldn't be able to help himself. Yeah. Yeah, it was something that, uh, you know, came up from time to time. And, you know, he clearly was single, available. You know, Neelix had Kest for a while and 
and Tom and uh, Bellano were sort of, you know, circling each other. So, you know, it made sense that Harry might be, you know, developing an interest in potentially pursuing something with Seven of Nine. Yeah. This is a very close-up shot of uh, Tuvok here. Yeah, extremely close on Tuvok right here. There. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I was not on set for much of this shoot, if any of it. Um, I don't remember what they what they did with uh, with Tim. I'm sure he was wearing uh, something. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Looks to me like you align the power couplings perfectly. I'm curious too because, um, according to my research, Brandon Braga was quoted as once saying that he initially didn't. He was opposed to this episode. He felt that. Voyager uh, dreamed a bit too much, and and this was also in a in an era in the '90s where I think uh, dream episodes were a bit more common than maybe they are today. Yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah curious if we could. And and yeah, Brandon had uh, he he'd written some nightmare episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I think that was the one where um, we saw uh, Counselor Troy turned into oh, a yeah. <laughs> yes. turned into a yes. birthday cake yes. or something. There's some other strange kind of you know nightmarish dream images going on. So Brandon was sort of into that thing, and I guess he felt that we'd maybe dipped into that well, you know, a little too often. But I think once he, once we did the episode, you know, it was a pretty fresh take, I think, on mm-hmm. on this kind of dream world story. Absolutely. And uh, I think he ended up liking it. For sure. I'm, I'm curious for both of you, um, when you, because you're in this writer's room and you kind of have to convince everyone in the room that like your idea is the best idea. And like, how, how what was it like to navigate that when like you would have someone who was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't like <laughs> Yeah, the skeptic. Yeah. There's always a skeptic. Uh, you know, it's always, uh, you know, my experience, and I wasn't in the writer's room on Voyager with the exception of my own episodes, you know, when I come come up with a story or happen to be involved in a story break for some reason. And, uh, you know, everybody was very respectful and, you know, no, no ideas are considered bad ideas. Uh, you know, we just try to figure out, you know, what's, what's the best story we can tell here. And, uh, you know, at some point you've got to make a decision. Uh, you know, so at some point, Jerry, I imagine, uh, Jerry Taylor, the showrunner said that, you know, I think we should do this one. And then, you know, once everybody uh, agrees that this is one worth doing, then you just try to make it the best story you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jerry ran a, a very equitable room in that it really didn't matter if you were, you know, the story editor or the executive producer. If you had a good idea, you had a good idea. Yeah. And she was really good at, at encouraging people to, to speak up. You know, you never got made fun of for a stupid idea or, you know, or right. criticized. It was always just, what else can we do? Yeah, for sure. Now we're seeing Tom Paris entering the atmosphere of some presumably Class M planet and an alien showing up outside the shuttle pod. Oh, and now Kim and Harry Kim and Seven of Nine are making out. Harry <laughs> Kim has a smile on his face. Ah, now he sees an alien. Ah. <laughs> and now I think we finally, if the audience hasn't figured it out already, when they see Harry Kim in bed asleep screaming after just having kissed Seven of Nine, <laughs> I think we know something is up. For sure. <laughs> and Tom wakes up and Tuvok wakes up. I think we, you know, we kind of overdid the startle wake a little bit. Yeah. Here. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I, I think the worst nightmare I've ever had. I never woke up like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> now our lovely Voyager opening title sequence, which I remember... And I think it still holds up. It, it's it's a pretty fantastic opening sequence, you know. This it is. Was, um, Epic. Comparable to the next-gen opening in the sense that it's, you know, hero shots of our ship flying through all sorts of fascinating astronomical phenomena. Uh, Deep Space Nine had a somewhat different opening because they had a space station in the wormhole. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't travel around the way that we did. But I always looked forward to what, you know, Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda and Herman Zimmerman and the rest of the people in the art department would come up with when we uh, when we were doing a new show, and um, yeah. I was excited because I, you know, Voyager was the first TV show I was involved with from the beginning. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, you know, I um, 
I started as the science consultant on the final season of Next Generation, which was also the second season of Deep Space Nine. So mm-hmm. when uh, Next Gen ended, Voyager was in development, and I was around for that. So I got to read the script, and Jerry asked me for you know technical notes on the pilot, and I'm like, oh my god! And yeah, I remember when I heard that Jean Genevieve Bujold was going to play the captain. <laughs> Ultimately, it didn't happen. But I was also down on uh, at the Paramount lot when they were building the sets, and that was yeah. something I'd never seen before, and that was extraordinarily exciting. Yes, That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. How did your how did your job as science advisor evolve? Because I think Voyager, uh, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but it, it did lean in a bit more to um, the the, the techno babble. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, I think in in um, you know Voyager, it was more in the, in the uh, you know in the tradition of Next Generation, both as stories about the crew of a ship exploring the exploring the galaxy, and that the language was more technical. Yes. We have a lot of technical characters on both shows, of course. We've got on Voyager, we've got The Doctor, we've got Seven of Nine, Janeway, as uh, probably most fans know, was an astrophysicist as well as a starship captain. Milana Torres is, you know, the engineer, of course. And, and so, you know, there were there were more opportunities for... Yay, written by um, Andrew Morenas. Hey! <laughs> yeah! Oh, I, you know what? I have a still of that because I love... Roxanne's expression, her oh, yeah. smirk, and <laughs> my name shows great. up. <laughs> um, you know, Deep Space Nine, they were much more, you know, Ira Bear and his, his writing staff, they were much more interested, I think, in the sort of personal dynamics and, and the politics of, you know, the Bajorans and the Cardassians. And, sure. I, you know, my recollection is that maybe I did half as much uh, technical language and science consulting on DS9 as I did on Voyager or Next Gen. That was just kind of the nature of those shows. Yeah. Um, we had established a terminology uh, mm-hmm. about how the starship works. <laughs> and uh, we, we know the general layout of the Milky Way galaxy. And we wanted to stay true to all of those things. And, uh, you know, to, to, to the executive producer's credit, and to my great, you know, advantage, they wanted somebody who would, uh, you know, ride herd on that stuff on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a part-time job, and it paid like a part-time job. I mean, <laughs> not enough to pay the bills. So I was highly motivated to come up with story ideas and yeah. also continue to work one day a week at a, at a, um, a planetary science research laboratory that happened to be located down in San Juan Capistrano, and I did some mm. freelance writing for magazines. I wrote a book, you know, about the science behind the science fiction of Star Trek. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and I think it's, I I hope it's something that people look at and say, you know, yeah, that stuff is pretty good. You know, it's, it's actually fairly, you know, well thought out. And yeah, there are a few places where I cringe kind of when I (laughs) see something that I put into a script uh, about an ionized L beam, you know, transmission or something of that nature but for the most part i'm i'm pretty happy with uh, how that stuff was handled on the show maybe you should pour yourself a cup well one of the things that made you a good science advisor is they have a good story sense um and so we didn't have to tell you you know about how how we needed to use something in a story i mean all we needed to do was explain you know well we need this kind of thing and then you would make sure that it fit in with the kind of story we wanted to tell i was going to give them another five minutes but i'll call them now if you'd like that's all right I'm a little late. Uh, Andre, you're muted. I wasn't going to mention it. Burning the midnight oil. I muted because there was a phone call on my landline coming in, and ah. I didn't want anybody <laughs> to be annoyed by the ring. Um, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that, Lisa. And I, I didn't know when I started. I found out some year or two later uh, that they had actually interviewed a number of other people for the position, and. What they had discovered was that when they talked to somebody who was a working scientist or engineer at a JPL at UCLA or wherever, they were very kind of doctrinaire and very sort of black and white about, oh, no, you can't do that, you know. And then, yeah. well, 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 what else can we do? Well, I, I don't know. I'm not a writer, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I always took the approach that you, know, you got to serve the story. And, um, yeah, I wanted to always find something in, you know, present-day science that would be the perfect fit for this part of a given story, 
But I was also, you know, very much aware of the fact that the show takes place 400 years in the future, you know? Yeah. We're going to learn stuff in the next 400 years that we don't know today. And that has to be the case because otherwise we're not going to have starships, you know, 400 years <laughs> in the future. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we kind of invented for the show with regards to the warp drive and the transporters and so on and so forth, well, naturally that has to be, you know, kind of an extrapolation of things that we more or less understand today and how that might work in the far future. Mm -hmm. uh, things that we, I, I never tried to violate like basic conservation <laughs> principles. <laughs> we talked about energy and, you know, energy is something that uh, you can transfer, it can change forms, it can be used to do work, but there are certain principles that, you know, entropy will always increase and uh, you can't make energy out of nothing, you know, so. Yeah. Things like that, I felt, you know, uh, I'm not going to stray from, but there's so much we don't know, so many things yet to be discovered, and it was fun to try to, you know, put those ideas into stories, too. And, and, and I think, you know, time has proven that that's inspired a lot of people to yes. go out and, you know, become scientists, engineers, doctors, you know, to, uh, to get excited about the fact that we don't know everything there is to know, and in fact, probably very little of what there is to know. <laughs> and yes. so, um, but yeah, you know, it was always about serving the story. And, yeah. and I never, you know, there was only one or two instances where I remember kind of just saying, you know, I, I don't think you should go down this road. <laughs> there, was a, there was a runner in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Captain Picard was going to go on holiday, as the British like to say, and ride some sort of high-tech kayak down a lava flow into the core of a Class M planet. Meaning <laughs> <laughs> a planet about the size of the Earth, right? 8,000 miles in diameter. And I basically said, you know, I think this is a real stretch. I think we should try to come up with something different. I'm happy to come up with other ideas. You know, yeah, I could see maybe navigating a lava flow on the surface of a planet that's going down the slope of a volcano. Um, but, you know, not only, not only is it, you know, does it, planets don't work that way, you know, lava tubes don't go to the center of the planet, um, in any conceivable class M planet we could imagine, but it's so Jules Verne, you know, people are going to immediately think journey to the center <laughs> yeah. of the earth, right? Yeah. You, don't, you don't want that, you know, because yeah. everyone sees that today as fantasy, not science fiction. And, and you know, they, they quickly agree and I forget what we substituted, but. It was not. I think, I think the real argument you should have said is like, how are you guys going to afford this? And then it would have closed <laughs> the door right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> it a few years later and I was producer. That would have been my first objection. Yes, exactly. We can't take it. I'm curious too. Uh, this has a lot of sleep elements to it. Yes. And a lot of people are drinking coffee. Uh, how much yeah. of this was influenced just by being overworked, underpaid, and really tired all the time? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. You know, for, you know, that, I'm sure that you know, Lisa and the other writers who worked on this story and worked on the script were kind of like, yeah, you know, sleep is a thing. And uh, you know, by the we, this is episode 13 or something you said, Peter. Yeah. You know, by that point in the season, you're all getting a little tired, and you're realizing, God, we've got to do another 13 of these. You know, we did 26 episodes a year back in those days, and I didn't really appreciate the challenge of that until I became a staff writer on Star Trek Enterprise and those first two yeah. seasons of Enterprise, we did 26 a year and we got like a three week hiatus and then had to start all yeah. over again. And, you know, in retrospect where, you know, I'm a writer on the Orville, you know, our season three is back in production now. And, um, you know, we did 10 episodes. Wow. Now that's a fairly typical order these days yeah. uh, for a TV series. And, on, on the Orville, because Seth MacFarlane is not only the star, he's also the head writer, and he directs half the episodes. We have to get all of the scripts done before we can get into production. Mm. We're not sort of chasing the schedule the way that we did back on Star Trek, on Voyager Enterprise and all the others, where you hope to have maybe three or four scripts in some form ready to go when you start shooting the first one, and then you're just trying to stay ahead of the schedule, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so it's great when you have the luxury of time to write all of the scripts before you have to go in front of the cameras. Unfortunately, once you go in front of the cameras, uh, you know, the way things stand now for the most part is 
if you don't know whether or not you're going to get another season of that show, you're kind of idle for some period of months. Absolutely. Yeah. You could be working. And we still get paid. Um, you know, if you're any any anywhere above that staff writer level, if you're a story editor, or co-executive producer, whatever, you, you get paid for your work um, um, on a per-episode basis. You know, so as a co-executive producer on, on The Orville, I get paid a certain amount of money per episode produced just for being there and helping break stories and all of the work that, you know, people on the writing staff are expected to do. And I get paid for my scripts, um, which is, you know, a Writer's Guild minimum kind of fee. So when we were doing 26 episodes a year, <laughs> you know, your per episode fee meant a lot more than it does when you're only doing 10, right? Yes. Absolutely. And yes, I get paid more than I did when I was a, you know, co-producer on Voyager, but you know, I'd have to look back at that. I don't remember exactly what I got paid, but that times 26 episodes is probably about what I'm getting for 10 episodes of the Orville. You know? Yeah. Maybe yeah. less. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, so it's that's, and, you know, again, that's fine, you know, and I think it's probably overall better, but I think that, you know, we need to kind of change the rules about, you know, production and when you can go to another show if you're waiting to hear about a pickup on you know the one you just finished yeah i mean i, I wish like i wish i could have been on a show that did 16 instead of 10 just from purely a financial standpoint but i will say that certainly in my age i, I would never want to go back to trying to do 26 hours a year <laughs> it I mean, was a little situation. insane yeah yeah I love how quickly Chicote falls asleep here. He's going to sleep. Now, now he seems to be awake. Up. Oh, now he's carrying a spear. By the way, I'm what's it like having that. a deer on set? That's what I. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was not an element. That was not an element that I introduced. At least I don't ah. think I did. Um, I loved it when I when whoever came up with it. I don't know if that was Ken or Lisa or somebody else, but and and I, and it's funny because I I had the same. Maybe I wrote this dialogue subsequently but you know my father was not much of a hunter but my older brother was definitely a hunter and I uh, grew up in Arizona and he would go deer hunting every season and I was never a fan of that and I didn't like it and I didn't I didn't sure. want to be involved in that and Chicote says something very similar here in this episode mm -hmm. which um, I, maybe I came up with that I don't know but I Somebody else came up with the deer. <laughs> it never would have occurred to me to put a deer on stage. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's yeah. an alien. That's a great CGI shot right there, too. Yeah. That's really yeah. very that was, you know, for, for 1997, that was pretty great. You know, that was yeah. just when we were starting to do those kind of morphing effects. Yeah. And it was very state-of-the-art, you know. Um, and I think, Lisa, you might remember this. This might have been the last season where we shot the physical Voyager model. Mm. They built this beautiful five, six foot fiberglass model of the Starship Voyager. It spent about $100,000, you know, building this thing over several months and it had all of those fiber optic lights. And, you know, I got to see it a couple of times when we were shooting it and, you know, really a work of art, you know, a thing of beauty. I think it was around the end of the fourth season that we put that model back in a box and never shot it again. Uh, we still use stock footage, but during, I think it was during the fourth season, they 3D scanned that model, mm. recreated it on, on a computer, and the cost of doing computer-generated special effects had come down by then to the point where we could afford to do five seconds, 10 seconds, of pure CGI mm -hmm. visual effects in a given episode. Yeah. It wasn't until 1997-98, if I'm remembering right, that the cost of doing that and the amount of time it takes to do it had yeah. come down enough that we could do it, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis on the show. And, you know, we have to render 30 frames for every second that you, you know, are looking at a special effect, right? If you're doing it all CGI, Mm -hmm. So a five-second, you know, five-second sequence is 150 frames that have to be individually rendered. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until the late 90s that the software, you know, was powerful enough, computers were fast enough, and it could be done in that, you know, limited production schedule time that we have to make it possible to do those things. So 
Yeah, I was, I was going to say in this episode too, there's a number of uh, CGI digital shots of Voyager and, and the quality is very good. Um, yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because you look at like just two years before this and you'd be having shows that still had kind of rudimentary 3D yeah. uh, special effects going on, uh, computer generated special effects. Oh yeah. But Voyager, it's like, this is kind of a tipping point where it's like, oh yes, this is good mm-hmm. enough now. It still holds up. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at the early seasons of uh, Babylon 5, you know, yes. where they were trying to use that video toaster technology or whatever they <laughs> called it, which was, you know, uh, that was before, you know, it wasn't before Photoshop necessarily, but it was before, you know, any of the effects houses were really doing substantial CGI work. And, you know, for its time, it looked fine. It looked yeah. kind of advanced, you know. Yeah. Uh, but man, it, it, it looks pretty creaky today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, there are things that we could do to the ship when we had the digital model that we would never imagine doing to yes, our beautiful 100,000 yeah. dollar model, <laughs> like blowing it to smithereens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Blowing holes in the hull, right? Uh, you know, whenever we contemplated doing something like that before the CGI model existed, it was always, you know, it's going to be a long shot. And we're going to get one of those little, you know, model kits that you can buy at the hobby shop, you know, that's 18 <laughs> inches long and we'll, we'll blow that one up. <laughs> We're not touching the real model. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is interesting because at this point in the episode, we are uh, in a dream within a dream. Right. Yes. So, like, we're in a shared dream here. The doctor is not, though. The doctor is outside of that. This is the part where it started to get complicated. And yeah. this is the, the thing that I had the most trouble writing. And I think mm-hmm. we're probably, you know, Ken Biller or whoever <laughs> was in charge of the rewrite kind of took the reins and said, uh, yeah, let me sh- let me show you how it's done here. Um, but you know, the idea that these aliens had a technology that could put us into this collective dream state, um, I thought was uh, you know a fun premise. And again, it's tricky because virtually everybody dreams. You know, some of us have more vivid dreams than others. You know, you can kind of train yourself to remember your dreams. I try to do that every morning, you know, uh, you know, lay in bed for a minute and think, what was I dreaming about last night? <laughs> but, you know, there is a quality to them that is clearly not like real life. Yeah. And whether you're in the dream and realize you're dreaming or whether you're just thinking about it after you woke up, you realize no, that was a dream, obviously. Yeah. So to try to sell this idea that we could be in a dream and, and not realize it, well, while you're dreaming, you know, you don't necessarily think of yourself as dreaming. Uh, right. And if you do, that's when you can take over. And that's the very definition of lucid dreaming. And that's a pretty rare thing. Like I said, I did that a few times when I was young, but I, I have not done that in years. I, every once in a while, I think I should, try to, I should try to do that again. And there are ways to practice and to prepare yourself. And, um, you know, we used an idea in this episode, of course, where when Chakotay, you know, he kind of planted subconsciously this idea in his head that, if I'm walking around the ship and I see Earth's moon, that's my cue. That's that's what tells me I'm dreaming. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's a technique that people who who uh, experiment with lucid dreaming also use. They they have some symbol or something that they try to you know sort of fixate on before they fall asleep and say, okay, now if I see the back of my hand, that means I'm dreaming. Mm-hmm. Now I have to ask though because he does that, and the first time he taps his hand three times to wake up. But he yes. wakes up in another dream. So my yes. question is, why did it not work the first time, but it did work the second time? And is there a world where he's actually stayed in the dream the whole time? <laughs> this is actually well, the final episode like, of the show. Like right anything here. else, it takes practice. So, you know, I, I didn't think it was too much of a buy to say it didn't work the first time because, gotcha. you know, like anything else, uh, you got to work at it. And sure. um, people who regularly engage in lucid dreaming say that it, it does take practice, it does take effort, you know. And I think we'd established in the episode that um, this was not something that Chakotay did on a regular basis. Right, right, it's something right. he knew how to do and uh, realized that that could be helpful in dealing with these these aliens who were suspicious of, uh, suspicious of us and our motives and were trying to kind of interrogate us at a level of reality that they could accept, which is us being in a dream state. Yeah. And you can always do a little bit of hand-waving when it's alien technology. You know, how does <laughs> yes. that work? Well, it's alien technology. Yeah. 
ye old <laughs> neurogenic it covers a lot of sins. pulled out for yeah. this one, you know. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, you know, uh, not not I'm not claiming that I was ahead of my time in any in any significant way here, but it's astonishing what people have been doing in the last 20 some odd years with um, functional magnetic resonant imaging of the brain, you know, yeah. to the point of them being able to, to, to you know, determine what color a person is thinking of when they're in an MRI machine, just looking by looking at the parts of the brain that are lighting up versus the parts that aren't. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you're thinking about the color red. It's like, oh, yeah, how did you know? So, you know, the idea that we can um, develop a technology someday to, you know, essentially mind read, you know, or access the subconscious more directly. Uh, I got to say, uh, you know, I think that's just a matter of time. And that's that's yeah. more than a little frightening to me. <laughs> the fact that, you know, Alexa or Siri or whatever is you know, constantly <laughs> listening to us. And, you know, sure. I'm thinking about, you know, my cat Alfie. He's got diabetes. <laughs> we gave him insulin for a while. We'd like to treat it, you know, we would like to just treat it, you know, with diet. You know, and then I go onto Facebook and suddenly a, uh, you know, uh, an ad for diabetic cat food comes up on yeah. my feed. You know, it's like, yeah. In my mind, spooky. You know? in my mind, Star Trek is from a timeline where like scientists and and government and nonprofits kind of push science forward, and yet we live in a world today where no, it's it's capitalism. And that's, yeah. I think the scary yeah. part. But science is great. <laughs> but yeah. what Facebook does with it is another another. Yeah, story. you know, there was certainly an idealism, you know, um, yeah. inherent in Star Trek, and certainly in Gene Roddenberry's vision for the original series. And obviously, you know, Roddenberry was very well aware of in the 1960s how advertising agencies were trying to manipulate consumers, and you know, and how television was, you know, was a powerful tool in that regard, but. You know, he still had an idealized vision for, you know, goals, you know, of scientific research and, and, you know, in the space program explicitly, of course, which was, uh, you know, some would argue to this day, that was, you know, that was the heyday, certainly of human exploration. You know, we've not been beyond low Earth orbit in almost 50 years. That's, that's yeah. sad and that's kind of amazing. And now today, the people who are most likely to, to get that to happen again are people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Yeah. NASA's, frankly, you know, I wouldn't say that they've dropped the ball, but they're kind of behind the curve at this point. Nope, yeah, it's when it comes to heavy lift launch vehicles and this next project to get people back to the moon, you know, which they're calling Artemis, you know, and wouldn't surprise me at all if Musk gets there before anybody else. Very um, true. Very true. Not at this Very point. True. Yeah. And I wonder what that means. You know, I don't know if the idea of a billionaire space race is any better than the idea of a Cold War space race. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, maybe that's not the best thing for humanity, but I guess time will tell. We'll Sadly, the out. expanse is probably more of our future than uh, Star Trek. Yeah, so. another Star Trek veteran who, in fact, Narain Shankar, yes, was the guy, yes. the guy I took over for as scientist. Narain got yeah. promoted to the Rydum <laughs> staff. In uh, back in 1993, and that's why they were out looking for a new science consultant. He, yeah. more than anybody else, proved to them that you really want somebody like this, uh, if for no other reason, to be kind of the clearinghouse who can talk to somebody who could, you know, talk to other scientists, but also talk to the writers, you know. And that was really more my. Um, I saw that as part of my primary role, you know. I mean, I, st I was a physics major in college, did some graduate work in physics and astronomy, and then I got involved in policy work and microcomputer applications. So I finished a master's degree, but never got a PhD. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, I, I knew how to talk to scientists. I understood basic science. I understood the scientific method. And, and I knew how to look things up. <laughs> I knew how to do yes. research. <laughs> and even in the pre-internet days, you know, uh, I was walking distance from the West LA Public Library which was a great resource. And then, of course, once the internet became, you know, common, easy to access and so forth, um, you know, I took advantage of that. But a lot, of, a lot of episodes, they came, you know, the writers would come to me with something and it's like, I, I just don't know. And, you know, I was never afraid to admit my ignorance. And when we worked on Lisa's episode, Scientific Method, um, I'd been reading about these exotic objects called binary pulsars, which are 
a pair of neutron stars that orbit the same point in space and send out bursts of radio waves and pulses of light. And, and Lisa just thought that was really cool. And and, yeah. <laughs> and I knew that that's, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm not going to know how to talk to the special effects guys exactly about how this should look. I really wasn't sure. So I, I called a guy at Caltech. You know, I looked him up online and found a, found a gentleman named Shrikal Carney, who was an expert on of all things, binary pulse star. <laughs> there you go. And like most scientists, more than happy to, you know, oh, you're working on Star Trek? Oh, that's great. Are oh, you going to do a binary <laughs> pulse star? That's amazing. Awesome. Let me tell you what, you know, let me do it. Let me, let me, you know, do a few calculations and I'll get back to you. <laughs> so, you know, he worked with uh, Rick Sternbach in the art department to create what was, I am sure, the first, uh, the first depiction of a uh, binary pulse star system on an American television series. So I imagine, amazing. yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, my question uh, comes up for me right now. Like when I look at this episode, it, it, it's coming a few episodes after uh, the Year of Hell duology, which yeah. uh, I imagine was quite an expensive part two-part episode. Mm -hmm. um, and I see this episode, and it's all on the Voyager sets. Yes, there are some aliens, but it is all on the Voyager set. I'm curious: was this an expensive episode to make? Was this actually a money-saving episode to make? Like, give us a, a gauge there in terms I'm of. I'm guessing it saved money. You know, bottle shows, as we love it, absolutely, typically do. Yeah. You know, obviously, we had alien makeup budget. We had a guest cast. We, uh, I think, we maybe used our cave sets. We see that maybe toward the end of the episode. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, you know, if you don't have to build new sets and if you don't have a lot of elaborate special effects, then you're, you're going to save money. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's appealing about doing an episode like this, you know. Um, to what extent did that help me sell this story at this particular juncture in season four? I don't know. It, it might have helped. <laughs> but I know we were always looking for bottle shows, you know. Yeah. You could come up with a great story that had a, had a great part for one of our principal characters and it took place entirely on the ship that's you know that's gold right there gold. <laughs> lisa do you do you recall at the time and in, in season four like was because of course then you had scorpion part two which started out the season which i imagine yeah. was another uh, expensive episode like was there kind of a an air of like okay guys we need to we need to save some money here so it's uh Let's come up well, with but as Andre said, we were always looking for for great bottle show concepts yeah. because if yeah. you can have several episodes in a row that save money, then yeah, you can afford to do something really big and splashy, which mm -hmm. you know we all wanted to do. So uh, I, I think a, a good bottle show is always in demand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Brandon was pretty good at coming up with those too, mm -hmm. and uh, he wrote an episode of Next Generation called Cause and Effect. Yeah, it was a sort of a time loop story. And the end of each act, I think maybe the end of all but one act was the Enterprise blowing itself to smithereens. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was like, hey, it's great. It's a great, you know, uh, it keeps the audience, you know, uh, through the commercials to see what happens <laughs> next. And you can it's tell the whole best. story on the, on the standing sets, right? So mm -hmm. one, of the best. Um, one thing I also want to point out um, if you notice that Falana is wearing her, her jacket, uh, kind of, uh, she has like a, a, a long jacket over her regular uniform, and that's because she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to hide Roxanne's real life pregnancy. Uh, and so you will, you will never see her like, you know, below the waist. She's yeah. always going to be standing behind something or we're going to yeah. frame it like this. Yeah. Yeah, everything but the pocket protector in that jacket. I think it's <laughs> yes. very funny. <laughs> I love that jacket. I want it. <laughs> now that, you know, this makes me feel very old, knowing that I, I, I haven't seen Roxy in, in several years, quite a few years. Her kid must be like 23, 24 now, right? Yeah. 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 At least. God. This was 97, yeah. 24, yep. 25. I know. <laughs> I've worked with people on the Oroville who were not born when I moved to Los Angeles in May of 1993 after graduate school to be the yep. science consultant on Star Trek. And, you know, I, I think of them as my peers. That's the weird thing. You know? yeah. It's, like, it, it's, it's kind of like when you're dreaming, you know, and you don't know you're dreaming. Well, when you're my age, <laughs> you don't think of yourself <laughs> as being, he's that old, you know? <laughs> you just feel like, I feel like, I don't feel any different than I did 30 years ago, probably. I mean, I might feel better in some ways, but man, I just... 
I can't, yeah. you know, when I look at the calendar and I realize, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm actually that old. <laughs> kind of astonishing to me. So uh, here's another question for you. The aliens here, they thrive off of, of bringing... Is, so, Greg, uh, you did explain it in the episode, but it's like the dreaming within a dream thing is part of their defense mechanism, right? Right. right. But like how as a culture are they able to sustain themselves is it like a matrix type setup where they're infused with nutrient uh, no or? you know my conception is that they that they have a waking life that they do ah, wake up okay. uh, on okay. a regular basis and they eat and they do everything else that you know living creatures do to survive they just think of that as being sort of the that's their dream world in effect mm. and they may understand at some level it's necessary for their physiology, but just like us, sleeping and dreaming is necessary for our physiology. Yeah. Right. If you don't, if you don't, if you can't do either one, you're you're not going to be you're not going to be alive for, for very yeah. much longer, right? So they just have a different perspective on what what constitutes the real world. Yeah, that's actually very clever too, because like when we see their planet here very shortly, uh, it's mm -hmm. a very desolate environment. Yeah. yeah, I would imagine their quality of life there is not great. And it, it's very yeah. reminiscent of how like, even we as humans, you know, we yeah. develop Retreated stories, we develop, yeah. you know, we develop mythology as a way of kind of making our lives more exciting than they actually are, you know? Yeah, and you know, when I do this very kind of, you know, world building, as we call it, I don't know how much thought I put into it at the time, but, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have assumed that this species has always been this way. Mm -hmm. This could be the way they've been for the last few thousand years. Yeah. And for the first, you know, million years, you know, after they evolved into, you know, sentient life forms or whatever, you know, they may, they may have been much more like us. And it's a more recent cultural kind of phenomenon, but it's become the dominant culture on this world. Something we were talking about a little bit earlier was um, the, the fact that this is a Chakotay episode uh, when we did not actually have a lot of episodes featuring Chakotay. Yeah. And the way you described coming up with the episode, it was always sort of tied in with his heritage. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, that was always in my experience. And Lisa, you can speak to this as well better than me. I'm sure that, you know, a character-centered story um, if you came up with a, an interesting take on one of our regular characters and it was really integral to that story, and if it also had some interesting science fiction element, that was always the kind of thing they wanted to hear, you know, whether they bought that particular story or not. You know, when I came in with just sort of high concept science fiction ideas, oh, that's cool. It's like, well, what's the story? Yeah. And what's the story is not just what are the plot beats, how does this matter? to anybody on our on our crew in our cast right mm -hmm. the other one my first story sale i think was was a two box story that rob doherty wrote the uh, teleplay for called oh, yeah. Riddle. and i came up with that pitch when i read a review of a book i didn't even read the actual book i read a review <laughs> of a book oh here's the cavern where the mm -hmm. uh, where the aliens oh uh, yes it's a great see. shot that, that's a pretty a cool shot, shot. Yeah. that was definitely uh, augmented by cgi oh for sure but even just two years before this, they wouldn't have been yeah. able to do that. So, um, yeah, I came up with this two-box story because I'd read something about how there was a guy who'd written a book, a neurologist, about this artificial distinction between reason and emotion and that the sort of the mental circuitry involved in rational thinking, logic, math mathematics, is sort of inextricably intertwined with the limbic system and how we process emotion. And in fact, a lot of what seems like rational decision-making is actually driven by intuition, which is based on lived experience and how you process that emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, this is a great story for Tubok, you know? What if he gets cut off from his emotional core? Mm -hmm. You know, my premise was that the dirty little secret of the Vulcans is that when they're in a stressful situation and they need to make a decision and they can't arrive at that decision by pure logic, they use intuition. They, they make essentially an emotional snap decision. Now, they will couch it in logic and they will tell you in retrospect, this was purely logical, arrived at by logical means, you know. Uh, but that's not true. So in my yeah. pitch, Tuvok had some kind of an accident, uh, got zapped by an alien weapon or something. And uh, 
he can no longer keep his emotions repressed. Oh, no, no. My version was that initially he got completely cut off from his emotions. And at first he thinks, well, this is fantastic. I've achieved colonoscopy. You know, this is the, the this is what every Vulcan aspires to. Yeah. But then we discover he can't function as an officer on the bridge because every time you ask him to to make a decision, he spends an hour talking about the pros and cons and all the different you know possible <laughs> consequences and da 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 da. And so just tell me, you know, can mm-hmm. I take the next two hours off or can't I? You know, <laughs> um, and so he had to reintegrate his emotional core to become a part of the crew again because we couldn't afford to have a Vulcan mystic on the ship. We needed him to be. You know, an officer, yeah. and that was a difficult and terrible process. And and Rob wrote the story. Rob wrote the teleplay, and it became much more about uh, Tuvok's friendship with Neelix and how he mm-hmm. he initially, I think, became connected to his emotions in a way he hadn't been before, and became friends with Neelix, but then had to learn to turn that off to be a Vulcan officer again. And it was very poignant. Yeah. And there was a nice little note at the end where where Tuvok basically admits to Neelix, not directly, but indirectly, that, no, you're still my friend and I still have feelings for you. <laughs> but again, that was, you know, totally Tuvok-driven story, right? Yeah. All about him. But an interesting scientific concept about the way the brain works and mm-hmm. logic and reason versus emotion and intuition. Yeah, if you can marry a high concept story with a character story, again, that's that's pure gold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, it, always what we were looking for and in just about any other, you know, TV series to look at, you know. It's kind of screenwriting 101 for aspiring TV writers is, you know, you, you, if, if the audience doesn't care about the characters, they're not going to keep watching the show. You've got to make it about the characters first and foremost. That's this is clever too, because you think Chicote is lost right here. He fell yeah. asleep. The episode's right. ruined, but in fact, this is a little part of a larger plan. And <laughs> he is actually like fulfilling his goal right here. It's brilliant. Yeah. And the doctor the says that our, our crew members being smart. What's that now? <laughs> you and I are both going to die in our sleep. It's good to see our characters that think their way out of a situation instead yeah. of always having to blast right. your way out. Yeah. With the neurogenic field neutralized, I've been successful in reviving the entire crew. Unfortunately, the experience has produced a troubling... I still see Bob Picardo from time to time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Great, yeah. great guy. He, um, he is on the yeah. board of directors of the Planetary Society, which is a group that oh, I wow. worked with over many, many years and was founded by really? Carl Sagan. I'm working with Carl Sagan's son, Sam. Mm. on um, this new Bill Nye show. He also worked on the new season of Cosmos that came out last year, which his father and his mother, Andrean, created back in the 80s. And um, and Sam's brother, Nick Sagan, was a writer on Voyager for a couple of seasons. Wow, that's yeah. great. I really wish someone would, uh, would uh, you know, make replicas of their pajamas in Star Trek because they always look just so comfortable. <laughs> yeah. It looks so goddamn comfortable. That's kind of how I looked during the whole quarantine. That's kind of what I was wearing. Yeah, right. Stuff like exactly. that. <laughs> yeah, now I, this was a nice little tag, the idea that um, now everybody is having trouble sleeping. <laughs> Waking up early. Yeah, they're afraid to. It's like Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. <laughs> these late night get-togethers <laughs> speak for yourself i would kill for a good night's sleep what i love about voyager too is you have these kind of little more like everyday life moments yeah. you know which you don't quite have a lot of in next generation because it's always so like story focused but like here yeah. and even at the end of this episode too you see just uh Bellana and uh and tom just having yeah. a bit of a dispute it's lovely yeah i think that that was another you know that was intentional on, on the part of jerry and um you know, and Rick Berman and Michael Piller is, hey, Lisa Klink. Um, sorry, me. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, Roddenberry's sort of dictate for Star Trek The Next Generation was a, you know, we're beyond the kind of petty conflicts among people. Right. That, uh, you know, are such a, you know, difficult feature of our of our world today. And so among the crew, there was very little conflict, unlike the original series, right? And um, 
And so there was a kind of a formality, a little bit of a stiffness maybe in the character interactions, I think, on Next Gen, with, with, with important exceptions. But it really kind of was Picard and Data, uh, you know, and, and Worf, uh, and maybe to some extent uh, Dr. Crusher. But, you know, it, it was definitely more a feeling of people who work together yeah. as opposed to a family. Yeah. And I think that Voyager, that, that, that cast and crew feels very much like family, you know. And I think a lot of that was probably, you know, Kate McGrew and the fact that she, yeah. you know, has got that kind of warmth and, you know, um, almost a motherly kind of a presence. You know, I don't mean that term pejoratively in any way. But the fact that she has that sort of, you know, thoughtful and empathic nurturing quality and that she, you know, was a parental figure, you know, to these crew members and that we would see them in these personal moments, you know, that was kind of a rare thing on Star Trek Next Generation. And when they did that, it was a little more, you know, even those scenes, like when they were playing poker together, mm -hmm. you know, seemed a little more formal, you know? Yeah. 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 You didn't see them in their pajamas in the mess hall. <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> Where I was in their uniforms. Um, it was very formal, very formal. Uh, so that wrapped up the episode. The credits have rolled. Uh, that wraps everything up there. Um, do you have any final thoughts on on this episode? You had the sole credit on it. It was uh, one of your early episodes of Voyager. Um, it was. Yeah, you know, it's fun to look back at it. And, um, you know, it's amazing, again, to just think, God, that was, you know, a quarter of a century ago. Crazy. Um, it doesn't feel like it. Um, no. And it, you know, it, it was a great experience on a lot of levels. I, I mean, Lisa will tell you that, you know, Jerry Taylor is one of the nicest people in the world. You know, forget about Hollywood, yes. forget about, you know, anything else. I mean, she's just an amazing person. And uh, was, if it had been anybody else, uh, you know, in charge of that show, uh, I, I don't know that I would have, you know, been successful as a writer to, to the degree that I am because she was welcoming, she was non-critical. She rejected a lot of stories that I pitched, but I never felt, I never felt, you know, embarrassed or defeated, and I never felt like giving up. Uh, had I been, you know, in some other situation on a different show with a different kind of showrunner, and, you know, people were not as supportive, you know, and I've been in a couple of situations like that subsequently, uh, I, I don't think I would have yeah. ever... I wouldn't have stuck it out. I wouldn't have stayed here. I probably would be back in DC doing policy work for NASA or something like that. So, you know, all credit <laughs> to Jerry. And, and I, I know that Lolita Facho, who's our script coordinator, saw Jerry recently. Uh, mm -hmm. Lolita's working on a documentary about Voyager and said that, you know, Jerry's doing great. And I was so happy to hear that because I have not seen her in, gosh, at least 10 years. I visited her yeah. and her then husband, David, where they live up at a place called Sea Ranch and we got to spend the night with them and have dinner. And, and, um, I don't think I've seen her since then. Mm. Mm. So I'm glad to hear. Yeah. She, she definitely told. took herself out of Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. She Voyager ended and she and David basically said, adios. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Lisa, any final thoughts on this episode, watching it again? Uh, you know, what was it like to look back on? Um, just kind of echoing, you know, some of the stuff that we've been saying, you know, it's, it really had all the elements that we were looking for, you know, and it, it had the character story, it had, you know, the high concept, and it was cheap. So this is pretty much, you know, your, your model episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say for me, like I, uh, recently uh, contributed to the uh, Voyager documentary Indiegogo thing. And I specifically uh, selected the replica coffee mug because probably a large part of this episode and many of the other times they drank lots of coffee <laughs> in Voyager. Um, there's coffee in that nebula. There's coffee in that nebula. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, so we'll, we'll wrap things up right there um, for all of us. Uh, if you want to, Touch base with us on social media. You can find us at uh, Inglorious Trek on uh, Instagram and Inglorious Trek Experts on, on Twitter and Facebook. Um, Andre, uh, do you have a social Andre? media? Where could we find you online? Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> not many places really. I guess Sky by Night Productions is my production company and I do have a website. I haven't looked at it in 
two or three years. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's probably some stuff that I've done some commentary for Orville and some other things that you can probably find online if you just do a Google search. And um, um, other than that, I don't think that I have much of an online presence, frankly. You're probably the better of us yeah, for doing I'm just, that. I'm just old. <laughs> just old. Watch the old guy. All right. Well, uh, for Lisa Klink and myself, we will say to the audience, thank you for listening and uh, keep on trekking. Oh, and then we need to thank we need to thank our executive producers, of course, uh, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin, as well as sound engineer uh, Bill Ritter and producer uh, Natalie Muscali. Um, and okay, so from there, I will say <laughs> thank you for being here, listeners. And until next time, uh, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.